Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to You for the common grace that You have given to us uh, by giving us um, human authorities, governing authorities, to keep our world from running amok, from allowing our overflowing evil to cause such disorder that we would not be able to fulfill any of our God-given mandates. Lord, we ask that You would give us wisdom into this Your Word. Help us not only to understand it, but also to submit to it. Because in submitting to it, we are submitting to You. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. And I'll say right from the beginning as I begin this sermon, there's a lot of questions that are going to be left unanswered. This passage is... um, Many books could be written and have been written on this passage. And I must say that when I planned on preaching this passage, I thought I would be approaching it from a a completely different point of view. Back in September when I was outlining the book of Romans and my sermons and began thinking about this passage, I honestly thought that I would be preaching it from the perspective of being on the cusp of inaugurating President Hillary Clinton. Uh, she had signaled that her administration would not be at all friendly to, to evangelical Christians, while at the same time being very supportive of abortion on demand. I'll be very honest. Uh, had she won, I would have been preaching this sermon as much to myself as to anybody uh, that would be here this morning. I would have struggled mightily with her presidency, not because she's a woman, not because she has a very distant relationship with the concept of telling the truth, uh, not even because she is on the opposite end of the spectrum uh, from where I am politically. There were, very, there were two very distinct areas where I would have struggled. I was convinced that her style of governing would have further ripped apart our society between people who were for her and people who were against her. And more importantly, uh, there was no doubt, at least in my mind, that she has very little respect for the rule of law. Uh, I would have seen her election as a well-deserved and just but very harsh judgment from God upon our nation. Uh, That being said, had she been elected president, I would have given her the honor of calling her my president. I would have done so because God is ultimately the one who placed her in the presidency. Verse 1 of our text says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And the very last verse of our text, verse 7, says that we are to pay to all what is owed them. If respect is owed, then we are to pay respect. If honor is owed, then we are to pay honor. We are not to withhold our honor based on whether our choice for president uh, won or not. 
And we have a president-elect, Donald Trump, instead. It's difficult to forecast how he will govern. As with all human leaders, we should remember Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 that all human leaders, no matter how powerful they may be, they all have feet of clay. This sermon is not about presidents. Rather, it is about how we as Christians should think about the relationship between God and government. It should be a very practical sermon because this text of Scripture has implications for how we think about war and peace or how we think about revolts and revolutions, how we think about laws and law enforcement, how we think about political activism and civil disobedience, how we think about elections and voting, what we think about paying taxes, speed limits, seat belts, stop signs, or even baby seats. This passage is very far-reaching indeed. The first principle that we will draw from this passage is the most basic. It is foundational for everything else in this passage. In fact, it is foundational for how you live your life. It is foundational for how you make decisions. It is foundational for how you view the future of our nation or how you view the future of the world or even how you view your own personal future. In other words, this first principle is all-encompassing for how you live your life. So what is this all-important, all-encompassing first principle? It is simply this. God is the Lord. Every governing official, every authority, every nation that exists only exists because of God. He is the Lord. He is the sovereign God. He is the King to whom all kings must bow because all authority or any authority that they have is from Him alone. And of course this applies to the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God. Therefore Jesus says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me, He says. Therefore, the Lord Jesus Christ is aptly called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, since His resurrection and His ascension, He's not up in heaven twiddling His thumbs, waiting idly until He comes back to gather His church. That is not the case at all. He is ruling and reigning now. He is ruling presently over His church. He is working by His Holy Spirit through His Gospel to subdue subdue our stubborn wills to Himself and to His commandments. He is restraining evil in the world that otherwise would make this world unlivable. And He is conquering all His and our enemies through His sovereign providence and through His all-powerful Gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ is not sitting, sitting idly by. He is never 
idle. He is ruling and reigning now over our world and over our hearts, over our church. If you want some uh, Sabbath afternoon reading that would, would be beneficial and would go hand in hand with this sermon, read the first three or four chapters of the book of Revelation. How Jesus is walking in and among the candlesticks, ruling and reigning among the churches. And if you want to keep reading in the book of Revelation, you'll see that He's not only ruling as He's walking among the candlesticks, but He's ruling and reigning over all of history. Even as um, the church, or evil is trying to destroy the church, Jesus Christ is ruling. Even as history moves forward, He is ruling. And at the end of history, He continues to rule. Forever and ever, He is King. Whether you are a Christian or not, whether you have bowed the knee to Him or not, He is your King. He's not waiting to be your King only when you submit to Him. No. If you refuse to submit to Him, He is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, He must be your priority. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. The Greek word for observe is the word Terrain. It means to keep, to fulfill, to pay special attention to. So, for instance, it would be the word you would use if you were to tell a teenager uh, to keep their curfew, to observe the curfew. And if they stayed out past the allotted time, they would have broken the curfew. They would have disobeyed the commanded time. Jesus here in the Great Commission is saying that if we are going to fulfill His commission, we are not only to go and make disciples, but we're to teach God's people to obey Him in everything. Because all peoples are to obey Him in everything. Because Jesus is Lord, He is the boss. His commandments must be kept with utmost diligence and preeminence. There is within Christianity that this there's within Christianity this idea that obedience is and especially obedience to Christ is optional. The idea it goes like this that we're already forgiven and we're not perfect. Therefore a little sin around the edge of edges is acceptable to Jesus. Besides, being too concerned about obedience, well, that's kind of legalistic, isn't it? That, my brothers and sisters, is stinking thinking. Dallas Willard says, to present Christ's lordship as an option leaves it squarely in the category of stereo equipment for a new car. Obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ is not optional. He is the Lord. He is the boss. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So many Christians these days think, well, a little premarital sex is okay because everybody's doing it. A little cheating on the taxes is okay because everybody's doing it. A little pornography is okay because everybody's doing it. A little gossip is okay because everybody's doing it. On the day of judgment, when the sheep are separated from the goats, when every individual and all nations stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we will then find out just how the Lord Jesus feels about optional obedience. And actually, we know already how He feels about optional obedience. He will not stand for it. So the first point is that Christ is the King and Lord of the nations and He is the King and Lord over every person who has lived or will live or who is presently living. The following points will be organized around questions raised then by implication. And so, the first question is, if Christ is indeed King and Lord of the nations, then what does that mean for our relationship between the church and the state? Does it mean that God intends that all nations should be theocracies if they are going to be obedient to Him? Well, no, not at all. God calls all nations His servants. He even calls them His ministers. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, For rulers, beginning with verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Twice he's called servant. And then in verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. All governments that have ever existed or will exist fall under the scope of this passage. All governments from the most wicked and unjust the most communistic uh, of all governments or brutal uh, dictatorial of all governments to the best and most righteous governments like those of King Hezekiah or King Josiah, all fall under the scope of this passage. The reason why we have a separation of church and state in our nation is because our founding fathers realized that if we did not have um, that separation, that uh, ungodly political leaders would begin oppressing the church. And so it's a good thing we have a separation. The church is can do with freedom what God has called the church to do. The government can do what it is called, what God has called the government to do. It provides for orderly society so that the church 
can carry out its uh, its mandate. But um, it's, so it's a good thing that we have a separation there. Uh, a nation does not need to be a theocracy to be pleasing to the Lord. Government is given, even wicked governments, as a, as a form of God's common grace. Government is for our good. Governments, even wicked govern, governments, bring restraint on evil. You know, what a tidal wave of evil would break over the world if there were no civil authorities. Down in Mexico in 2005, the city of Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, became so overrun by drug gangs that no one was willing to serve in the police force. Even when the Mexican government declared martial law and sent in troops, uh, government troops, they also were killed. In other words, the town ceased to function. The streets were empty. And that's what the world would look like if there were no governing authorities. The evil that would break forth across the world would be unmanageable. The world would be unlivable. What would you do if you were to call 911 and there was no answer? What if there were no police? What if there were no firemen? What if there was no restraint of evil? In other words, government is God's servant for your good. If God has delegated His authority to government, then a second question arises. Are we always and only to submit to to government? Are we never to question what government does? At first glance, the Apostle Paul seems to put the requirements of submission to the government in absolute terms. Look again at verses 1 and 2 that Justin read. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. And then verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so this seems pretty absolute. Paul seems to be speaking in these absolute terms, saying, everyone must submit to the government without question. Well, that raises some pretty big questions as you begin to think about it. There are governments that are presently outlawing Christianity and are actively suppressing and persecuting Christians. Are Christians required by these passages then to, to renounce their faith because the government under which they are living says that it is unlawful for them to be Christians? Or what about the Greensboro Four? If you've heard of them, four black men who went in and broke the law in 1960 by sitting in, a, in the restaurant area in uh, Woolworth in Greensboro, North Carolina, were they not allowed to commit civil disobedience in response to the unjust laws if submission to the government is absolute? Or was I sinning in 1989 
when I was arrested for blocking an abortion clinic door? Or how about this? What about the apostles in Acts chapter 5 when they said we must submit uh, to God rather than men? What about the Hebrew midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh and uh, secretly um, helped the Jewish women to give birth to male children? What about Daniel when he went up in his... uh, Room to pray when an edict went out that no one may bow down um, to anyone except uh, the ruling authorities. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown into the fiery furnace because of their civil disobedience? Or how about this? Was the American Revolution sinful because we we revolted against the governing authority, the King of England? By the way, have you heard what they called the American Revolution in England while it was being fought? It was called the Presbyterian Parsons Revolt. Uh, One supporter of the King of England wrote at the time, I fix all the blame for these extraordinary proceedings upon the Presbyterians. They have been the chief and principal instruments in all these flaming measures. They They always do and ever will act against government from that restless and turbulent anti-monarchical spirit which has always distinguished them everywhere. The Prime Minister of England at the time says, Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson. Speaking of John Witherspoon, who was the president of Princeton Seminary. Um, And Princeton then was a Presbyterian um, seminary. The historians tell us when Cornwallis was driven back to ultimate retreat and surrender at Yorktown, that all the colonels in the colonial army... Uh, All but one were Presbyterian elders. And more than half of all the soldiers and officers of the American army during the Revolution were Presbyterians. In other words, if we are to submit with unquestioned uh, submission to the governing authorities, were the Presbyterians guilty of sinning against the Lord by starting the American Revolution and winning it? So what about submission to the governing authorities? What about civil disobedience? What about revolting from an unjust and onerous government? Whole books could have been written about the subject. Let me just say this. This passage does not directly say what we ought to do when a government departs from the role God has given it. It does not specifically explain what to do when our government is committing a moral wrong. And neither are we told to do Um, what to do in the midst of a revolution. That being said, in other words, I think there's there's room for discussion about these, these areas. Scripture makes room for civil disobedience. There's room for discussion about these things. But we don't have time to go into that discussion now. But that being said, this passage does tell us to submit to civil authority. Why? Because God has delegated His authority to keep society in order. If you disobey the civil authority, if you're cheating on your taxes, not wearing a seatbelt,
speeding, running stop signs, red lights, that kind of thing, you will likely be punished. But more importantly, you will be disobeying and disregarding God Himself. It says here in verse 5, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. One more question before I close. Does it mean we have to be happy about paying our taxes? Verse 6, For because of this you pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. A pastor that I knew used to write in to the um, Internal Revenue Service. This is before you could file them electronically, and he would always address it. The Infernal Revenue Service. (laughs) Um, To show his disdain. And I wonder, was he sinning? He probably had a sinful attitude because he was to pay the taxes that he owed. In conclusion, one of the things that I want you to wrestle with is are you in submission to the governing authorities? Are you in submission to the laws that God has placed here in our country that we as citizens are called to obey? Even Martin Murphy, our resident uh, Irishman, still is called to obey the laws of our country. Yes, we are to obey them because God is the ultimate authority. And I found that um, if you're not submissive to government, you're probably not real submissive to God and vice versa. Secondly, the King of kings and the Lord of lords the judge and ruler of all is also our Savior. He left heaven to come here into our world. He obeyed all of the civil laws perfectly. He obeyed all the commands in the Scriptures perfectly. And He did so because He Himself is God and He did so also for our sake. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. And so because of Him, because He is in control, because He is sovereign, because He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, you can trust in Him even if the human rulers are difficult to submit to. Even if Trump had lost and Hillary had won, even though Trump is not a Christian, even though we don't know what his presidency will turn out like, even though we don't know what the future presidents will be, we can trust and the true King, the true Ruler, Jesus Christ, because He 
has given us His promises and He is coming back for His own. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we submit now to You wholly and completely and joyfully because to wear Your yoke is easy. Your burden, Lord Jesus, is light. Steer us according to Your commandments. Steer us according to the power of Your Spirit at work within us. We ask this in Your glorious name. Amen.